Welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business. A show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David and I'll be your host for the show. And welcome everyone. Today I have Trevor Whittington with us, um, CEO of WA Farmers Federation, or just WA Farmers, I think you'd say, Trevor. Well, it, and, is WA. Um, it used to be the Farmers Union many years ago, but we don't like to admit that anymore. Yeah, I know you don't like to talk about that. That's right. uh, yeah, so w, uh, CEO of WA Farmers. Now, Trevor, we got Trevor on. Trevor, if you haven't already been looking, has some really, is quite a prolific publisher on LinkedIn are some really good opinions and really bringing to light a lot of conversations in ag that don't normally happen and that need to start happening. And today, we're not going to cover all of those today because there's a lot of stuff out there, Trevor, but cover off a few. And so welcome to the podcast, Trevor. Yeah, thanks, David. And at the Edgerton Warburton is very famous. Uh, I went to the, uh, college with your sister and I went to school with you guys and we've actually got kids at school. So um, <laughs> you know. there, there's... There's the links into the to the West Australian wheat belt go, you know, a very short. Yeah, no, we're an Australia-wide podcast, but I think it's the same. It'd be the same in every part of agriculture and every part of Australia. You know, like yeah. it's a pretty small community, and we all small, amazing. We, small and shrinking. Small and shrinking. Good point. Good segue. So. Really today, one triggered me to get you on was this conversation which is had, I think, in every pub and town around Australia, but it's reality. And now I'll quote from one of your, a little bit of a quote from one of your posts in LinkedIn, and this is just you quoting data. So there's, um, we talk about when people in politics particularly talk about rural and regional, you know, people forget that a lot of, there's a lot of large cities in there, like, you know, your Woggers, your Aubrey's, your Bunbury, et cetera. But you're saying in this thing, there's 55,000, there's there's, a, there's a, a lots of little towns. So these are, what do you call them, sub 1,000, I think? Yeah, there's, there's the, 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 um, ABS breaks them down to the sub 5,000, the sub 1,000. Uh, town you and I come from uh, and are well in, into that. Yeah. They, they never got past that critical mass. And I think most of these towns peaked in the early 70s, late 60s, certainly in West Australia, in fact, right across Australia, and have yeah. been shrinking ever since. In According to this stat, there's 55,000 of these little towns that service about, oh, sorry, there's not 55,000, there's lots of little towns that service 55,000 broad acre farmers right. generally, right? Yeah. Getting my Otherwise, numbers we'd be, right in, we'd be in America. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be America, certainly. Um, and there's this downward trend of about 1% a year, and this trend's been continuing for about 50 years, Correct. I think. And also there's aggregation. So on top of that, we've obviously got this about 2.5% a year, I think the trend was saying, that there's this farm aggregation yeah. happening. And so there's this trajectory towards bigger farms, smaller towns. What you're saying in this, this bit of your post is, so by 2050, these little towns could be half the size they are based on this trend at least than they are already. So I suppose my question is, with all these, I suppose, what they are is just long-term trend market pressures. How do you see the future of these country towns in Australia? So what, what, are, you, what are you seeing going forward? Look, let's go back a little bit. You know, most of these towns were historically set up in horse and cart days. So uh, I've got a map behind me of all the sidings in Western Australia and there was literally, I don't know, 300 of these little things and it was you could get the horse and the drays and you wet your wool 12 miles there, 12 miles back. 
Uh, they probably had a school in between so the kids could you know, ride in the horse and cart, you know, five miles, seven miles was the most to go to school. And our whole infrastructure of communities and towns was designed back in an era before, you know, we had you know, motor vehicles. Then we had an influx of people uh, post-First World War, farmers setting up, mad clearing of land, expansion of the farming community, and it really sort of peaked out uh, in the 70s, early 70s, and since then we've been in, in decline through the size of gear getting bigger and the technology uh, and the ability of farmers just to cope with more and more land. So, and we've, as a result, we're having the aggregation and that's been sped up by people having less kids, less kids coming home, needing a bigger farm capital base, uh, minimum number of hectares to actually be viable. And our ability to run very, very large operations has sort of leaped away, particularly in the last 20 years. And so the top end of the farming world, the 80-20, the 20%, their, their ability to just pay an absolute premium for land. We've certainly seen that in the last you know, 12 months, three, four, five years when the price of land has exploded out of the blocks. Means that you're getting this disparity between you know the, the really big who just keep gobbling up land and, and the small, and you've got these country towns designed to serve lot, service lots of small farms. So when I was a kid, there was what, 230 small farms or small farms in, in, in our shire. And it's down to about 100 now. And realistically, you could probably run, you know, there'd probably be 10 or 20 farms and they'd be run, you know, pretty efficiently. So that raises the question of how many service personnel do you need? Because all these big properties are actually buying new gear. They don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of chain ones and older stuff or even, you know, you know stuff that's now, what, what are we, 2022? Uh, before 2000, 22-year-old gear. And the complexity of fixing this stuff needs, you need really clever people and they don't want to live in smaller towns on the whole because they can drive 100 k's. So mm-hmm. what, what used to be 12 miles is now 100 k's between what well, in Western Australia we, we attempted to call super towns, which are still comparatively small to the eastern states, 5,000 people, the Meridans, yep. the Northams, the Narragans, the Catanics, whatever. But even then, we're getting a movement to people drive in, drive out. What's that a trend you're saying? Oh, right across so the board. And right down to what we're seeing in Western Australia with the new federal government saying we're going to get rid of live exports and that's going to be a trigger for people to get rid of sheep and we're going to go, we've gone from 38 million sheep 30 years ago to 14 million, we're likely to head down, not up, because people don't want to do fat lambs and then chase sheep around paddocks and water all summer. So once you start moving towards big, expensive, sophisticated gear, you're only running an operation seven, eight months a year. So you Uh can, you know, your labour component, you can afford to pay a lot more for labour. They can drive further. People aren't invested in their community. They're driving to Perth to see their kids at school or whatever. End result, these towns, these sub-thousand person towns are just collapsing at the rate of knots. Like you're saying, we used to rely on 
our local towns were our input costs. That's where all our suppliers were. That's where all our labour was for farms. It's where the communities were, all the sporting clubs, etc. Like you, you know, most of these towns can no longer put together sporting teams. So, what pressures do you see, or challenges do you see this putting on the farm businesses in that region? Do you think there's new challenges that this is bringing to the fore that they're going to have to start to think about and deal with? Well, the labour is the biggest one. It's a lot easier that you have someone driving, you know, 20 or 30 k's from the local small town to come to work every day because they're only spending 20 minutes, half an hour in the vehicle to come out and back. And if they're doing long days, it works for them. You know, everyone's still invested in their local community and they've still got a pub and a shop and, you know, the tyre shop and the fuel station, the depot, whatever. And no one wants to see it go. But the reality is they're really struggling to keep labour. They're struggling to afford labour. And there's just too many of these towns for the number of farm businesses. You know, in Europe, what have we seen, you know, what have we seen the French do to address this? They've massively supported subsidies of farms. But really all that's doing is kicking the problem down the line. Mm. And we've all got vastly more sophisticated. You know, when I was a kid, we'd go to Perth four times a year. Now people just driving backwards and forwards, you know, three hours on the roads. The roads are a lot better. You know, everyone's got a house in town uh, in Perth or in their capital city or their big regional metropolitan area in the eastern states. People aren't building houses. Houses are cheap. People don't want to buy the houses because there's no capital upside. The shire is struggling to find, you know, workers and the local mechanic shops are struggling to find workers. People buy gear that needs very sophisticated people to fix it. Do you think this becomes a social problem as well? Like, So you're saying struggling to find labour. So I see it every day and you might see it. So what, every day, every weekend, I go to kids' sport on the weekend and a lot of the mums and dads there are from the eastern wheat belt like and for like you said when i was at school you and i I, I, you know went to boarding school and you went home a couple of times a year to see your folks and now and a lot of the mums are also living in perth now so is that part of that symptom of the social structure of that community is getting so small that people are wanting to find community outside that's right and we've also got vastly more sophisticated levels of interest of you know what we want and what we want for our kids so in the old days, you know, it'd be 60 people teeing off in the golf course, you know. When it falls down to 10, you can't actually maintain the golf course. And then you look at the quality of the golf courses in Perth and you, there's another reason to go to Perth and you, your kid's good at sport, so you want them to have an extra level of coaching or they're good at music or they want to do some theatre and drama. You used to be able to get all that. And so our expectations of what we want to provide for our kids goes up and so, so does it for farm workers and, and small business people. Yeah. So, you know, farmers say, oh, we want more people to come out to the country town, but, you know, they're not staying invested in the country town. We want to go to the, the super IGA or Coles and Woolworths or we want to go to Bunnings every weekend. So have a much better selection of the produce we buy. We want the cafes and we want that experience. We want to go and watch not the local you know, state football. We want to watch the national sporting teams and they're all based in Perth or City or Melbourne or whatever and in billion dollar arenas. So what we all want to enjoy uh, is catered for in these big central hubs. And we forget that Australia is one of the most urbanised place in the world. You know, 75% of the people live within big cities and big town communities. And we're one of the most uh, coastal countries in the world. You know, most people live within 50 k's of the coast. It's a shrinking percentage. And you look at the 200,000 people that come to Australia every year, historically, on average for the last 25 years, where do they go? They go to Sydney, they go to Melbourne, they go to the big capital cities, 
They don't even go up north uh, to the mining places of Queensland, New South Wales or Western Australia. All roads lead to the southern big capital cities. And can you blame people for not wanting that? This is the interesting challenge. So people who own properties and farms and farm businesses are wanting, essentially are attracted to the capital cities as much as anyone else, right? And so we're finding it with them spending a lot more time or in some cases living there and travelling to the farm or their children choosing to get sent away to school and never coming back. Mm. But at the same time, they need, they've got these big businesses now and complex businesses where they need sophisticated, well, really well-educated labour, managers, people like that. But those people are wanting the same things as well. So the challenge here is if you're one of these one of these farmers who are becoming more of the norm now, these larger operations with better machinery, what, what do we think we need to do or change to attract labour to these businesses now? Because you still need labour in these businesses yes. and they don't want to live in a small town. Yeah, so look, there's, there's a couple of things and I've written on this in, in the Farm Weekly and in my weekly blog. The number one is government needs to do the really basic things like making sure that the quality of, te- quality of teachers in the, in the local high schools is actually better than the average in Perth or Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere mm-hmm. else. So if your kid wants to do physics or maths, they're not struggling around with someone who just doesn't have that skill set to teach at that level. So if they have to pay teachers an extra 30% to go and work in these country towns, well, then so be it. You know, connectivity is obviously an issue, but most of the country towns have regional connectivity. Health, it's not such a big deal because most people, when you're crook, when your kid's crook, you'll go, you'll travel to the children's hospital or to the city for your specialist. So I'm not only worried about that. Education, you know, if the, if the quality of education in a town like Catanning or Narragin, WA, was on, on the whole better uh, and the facilities were better and people would, that you would get by paying to go to a small, you know, $10,000 Christian school or private school in Perth, then that would be a good anchor base to keep people. You might not be able to keep them in the smaller towns, but you'd definitely be able to keep them in those bigger towns where people can't afford or to pay for the expensive private schools. So that, that's sort of number one. The number two thing is farmers are actually starting to pay you know, their employees good money. And they've, they've sort of worked out that the, the glory days of you know, relatively cheap, very relatively unskilled labour has gone. You can't afford them. The health and safety rules, uh, the risk of someone bending a million dollar machine. So if you have to pay 100 grand, you've got to pay 100 grand. And also, so one of the other things to look at is for their partners to be able to offer them some work mm-hmm. because what happens in the city, both partners can get a job and people can move jobs. So that makes it very attractive. So if, if the you know having more women available to work, particularly peak season, people will be more accepting of that, which obviously they are with all the backpackers we're seeing out there. Lots of women working, fabulous. So that's that flexibility. Childcare is an important thing, and the amount of money and the sophistication of childcare centres we're seeing in the city is off the scale. So maybe rebalancing some of the funding and subsidies that goes to regional childcare uh, is important. And the last part of the equation is just telling people about the opportunity of being able to start a business. If you're a plumber or a builder or an electronic technician or someone, to, to lease a block in in the city, to build a clientele, to start up on your own is actually really expensive. So we're just seeing some country towns just building you know, a, a shed complex 
and leasing it for for you know a, a dollar a month because it's a, if you're a young guy or girl starting out, it might be a great place to just to get your start. Absolutely, and that's what we want: that injection of people, younger people, people who want to have, have you know a bit of get up and go, so they can go out there and um, start a business with relatively little capital. In fact, it's nothing more than than a ute and and have some tools and away they go. Do you think there's now this trend towards these larger farming operations that need this sort of more expensive, sophisticated labour and they're moving more towards a mining model? In other words, they need a lot more facilities on farm, they need great housing, they're going to have to start paying for things like private school fees, when some I know some of our clients already do, and this will further put a pressure on consolidation because, like, the business to be able to afford, say, a great manager now, you might have to put, you know, new housing, pay for school fees, pay enough to support both partners because they're both working in the city before, and so suddenly this might, you might need a certain size of operation to even get someone in the first place. Yeah, we're certainly seeing that now as people... And it's interesting, we're seeing people coming out of the mining sector, you know, they're an engineer or they've worked on the mines, and they, they, that, their expectation of how a farm would, would operate is a lot more sophisticated. So the, the safety systems, uh, the organisational structure, you know, so those expectations are rising rapidly. You've also seen farmers to, to attract and retain people. Um, particularly you know, during COVID when we really were stretched. The quality of accommodation, uh, if they, it's not just a cheap second, third-hand donger out the back. It's leasing places in town, paying the pub to do meals and laundry, you know, making it really easy for se- particularly seasonal workers and farmers actually buying houses in town and, uh, and buying the, you know, the nicer houses, not the ex-home, you know, ex-state housing, asbestos place that's at the back end of town. So the quality of housing is good and that allows uh, farm you know, managers or senior operators to then use their, their income to go and buy a place in the capital city as an investment property and they can lock in on the real estate market and ride the highs and lows and they're not being left behind because we've seen that in the past, people get left behind. Yeah, so it's, you can't assume that someone's going to want to stay in. You love your town, you've grown up in your town, but your senior people, your, even your junior people you're hiring, this is just a job. And they're unlikely to invest in that town. They may, but you can't assume that. So they've got to want to build a life outside of where where you are and their pay and their conditions have to allow the facilitate that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, what we're seeing is, um, and what I'm hearing is people are a lot more flexible on uh, the rotations, mad during seeding and, and harvest, and then take longer blocks, and off, often offering eight weeks of holiday or doing four-day weeks so that people can drive the three hours backwards and forwards and spend uh, a lot more long weekends. And we're just starting to see ex-mining people say, look, I really don't want to work on a mine anymore. You know, it used to be you know, five and one, and that was four and one, three and one. And now some of the mines are getting down to you know, one and one, but people are just getting sick of it. And so, and the, and the money differential, you can earn uh, 160, 200 grand as a mechanic up north at the moment. You can earn you know, well over $100,000 as a mechanic in the wheat belt now. And if you've got the flexibility, you, you get to come home, you get eight weeks off. People are saying, the work's more interesting. I've got more control of my life. That additional money's not worth it. I've got a house thrown in and I can use the extra for investment. You know, farmers are getting much more sophisticated on what they're offering because 
because we actually don't need people there during the quiet times. I've been talking to a few friends and family, and this is exactly that. Some of their best people have come from mining, and they've deliberately chosen agriculture because they like that physical nature of the work but they didn't they want to see their families every night and they want to have a better condition you know they don't want to be fifo anymore yeah. so you like you're saying if you put together the right package it is it is, the, know, it is the package around flexibility and we haven't done a really good job at, at advertising just how interesting the job is and how much mm. you know you get a degree of a larger degree of control you get a bit of a say in what's happening the minds have become very rigid regimented you only have to look at you know how they all dress and act and lectures they're, they're all copying on you know a whole range of things to how to behave you know you they're treated pretty poorly actually and having yeah. having formerly worked for a minister for mines my you know political days flown in and out of tens and tens of the mining operations across western australia you ended up attracting robots and they're treated like robots. Mm-hmm. And so even you've got people going up there as mechanics or fitters, they ending up doing the same work on the same piece of machinery, you know, dropping the gearbox into a 20-foot container out of the hall pack and doing 60 bolts because it's going to get stripped down and repaired every 20,000 hours up in Malaysia or somewhere. You just mm-hmm. don't have that sense of control of doing something different throughout the year. And I think... Selling that now that we've got over the hump of you know we're only going to pay our people twenty five thirty dollars an hour, we're only going to give them four weeks holiday a year. We're going to you know, push them for sixteen hour days during peak season instead of thirteen hour days, and all the stuff that has come with good oc health and safety. You know we, we can find a job for their partner during peak season, driving mm-hmm. a piece of machinery. We're going to set up. We're going to have good systems. We're going to have a pathway for a degree of management in the bigger farms. I, I think we've got a good a good thing to sell and that's going to flow through back to the start of the conversation into supporting those smaller towns, particularly if people are saying, well, you don't have to live on the farm even though I've got spare houses, I'm going to have you in town because that... Yeah, and how do you get them integrated into that town? Yeah, I think- people, if they've got kids, usually they get integrated. Hard not to get integrated into a town of a 1,000 people. Is there a risk that farming could actually follow? But because of the large farms, people wanting to live in Perth or Melbourne or Sydney or Wagga or Albury actually falling into a FIFO model. In other words, where all labour, including the owners, are literally living in a large urban or rural city and just having a accommodation on farm and just flying in for the five days or seven days, depending on the season, and then getting out, but not actually being their primary residence. Yeah, is I, there a? I thought that was going to happen. Um, you know, with the drive-in, drive-out model, particularly in states where you know three hours, you can. It's not that far. You're not doing four or five hours. We certainly saw it with all our shearing teams. You know, front up Monday morning and head off Friday evening. I think what's what's happened though, particularly the big grain operations. By the time you finished harvest uh, early January, they take a month off. And then they're having to go go back straight onto the tractor for deep ripping, you know, lime spreading. Then then you get a couple of summer rains, so you're onto the sprayer. And then we're we're into the seeding dry earlier. It's almost not stopping now. When we could almost block it out and say, look, you know, we, we'll shut down for two months. But because farmers size the operations got bigger, they're actually still stretched to get across all the all the dirt. Yeah. 
getting rid of the sheep certainly you know help. But you know, if you got got sheep and cattle, you've got to be there, obviously. I think we will be attracting people for peak seasons who are semi-retired. They come out and do you know sixty thousand dollars worth of work, and they'll drive machinery for for five or six months. I know we'd like to be able to import people. The ag visa was all about that. You know, do six months in Eastern Europe, Estonia or Latvia or you know Ukraine, come out to us twice a year and do six months. That's been knocked on the head. Um, so can I just drill down on that a bit? It's obviously, in theory, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. In other words, having visas that are attached to agricultural work, there's a demand, there's a need for labour, there's obviously an appetite globally to do the work. I suppose from an outsider, I'm not in politically inside this tent, so why is it not a no-brainer like it looks like on the outside? Is it a little bit more complex? Yeah, than it's, a, it's a good question because NFF, peak bodies like WA Farmers, pushed pushed for 10 years for an ag visa. Uh, the coalition in power for eight and a half years, you know, seven and a half years in at the end of you know, COVID, eventually they agreed to it, but they you know, dressed it up with getting an additional 10,000 people from the ASEAN countries. We're already getting the Pacific Solution or Team Olesti, you know, 10 or 20,000 coming back with the Fords. The problem, and, and that was brilliant for horticulture. No worries, people picking bananas and berries and, and working in pack houses, absolute need it because you can't get people to leave you know, the big capital cities or the big regional centres when and go and stay in a backpackers and work for you know eight months sleeping in a dormitory when if you wait an extra six or eight weeks, you'll get a job in Bunnings at um, $30 an hour and you can stay at home and take the bus to and through work. So you're not attracting people that struggle to get employment to go, that Australians, to going work in horticulture. In grains or livestock, where you need a certain skill set driving machinery, unfortunately, the Pacific solution, you just don't have people with that skill set. The ag visa would have worked, for people coming out of the Philippines, so because you know you could have brought in someone who can you know as a, me- a diesel mechanic and drives a truck in Manila. I reckon if you can drive a truck in Manila, you probably can drive a, a million dollar header across a paddock in Australia. They would have been brilliant because and they've also they speak English and had America running the show for you know nearly hundred years. So there's some cultural similarities because you do need people who are familiar with livestock or grain farming. You know, it's just a lot easier to put them on a machine. Labor's come in, knocking that on the head. They will expand the Pacific solution. It's not going to help us for the livestock guys. It's not going to help us for the, the grains guys. So we're back to needing the backpackers, but the backpackers generally do one year. We've lost the UK guys because of the uh, UK free trade agreement. They don't have to do their rural time, so they prefer to stay in the, work in the pub at Bondi or Byron Bay or Margaret River rather than going out to uh, Boy Up Brook or, you know, Bruce Rock. Yep. So we're going to struggle to attract that seasonal machine operator. And in, in particular, in part of Labor's DNA, there'll be we've still got, you know, regional unemployment. We're going to use the farmers and the ag sector to f- enforce them to employ them. They forget they've also passed all these health and safety and industrial manslaughter laws you know, we can't afford anything to go wrong with these farms. So you actually need very competent people to work on farms. 
Definitely. And so this goes into another. I just wrote an article yesterday, actually, and I thought of all this conversation when I did it. And it was in the latest ground cover magazine, the latest issue. And I was talking about there's a headline, autonomous agriculture is just a step away. And it's the research that the GRDC have done into, okay, the code of practice around autonomous large machinery. Essentially, this is broad acre machinery. Um, and obviously horticulture, which is a very obvious step. Are these labour issues, um, the town issues, the social issues, everything we've talked about today really going to make farm businesses, obviously of a particular size, really start going, well, instead of let's investing in people, let's start, let's just double down on tech and just go into automation. You know, let's stop putting people on headers because we can't afford the risk anyway. Let's just pay more from an automated header. It basically accelerate the fact that a bit like mining companies did, people are expensive and tricky. Let's just automate it. Yeah. And it looks like ag is getting close Closer and closer every year now to that reality. Yeah, two things. Two things there. We're sort of maxing out on the size of machinery that we can drive down roads. And when you've got ninety foot bars and sixty foot header fronts, and uh, you're just starting to reach the, the end of that easy upscaling, the next logical steps of automation. Um, you got some risk there of machines. You know, if it runs runs a mark on a mine. So it's going to go. It's not going to cause too much grief. Something keeps driving down the uh, across the paddock, across the neighbour's fence. It's going to get a bit interesting in some of the the legal and financial risks. So the simple solution there is the master slave machine. So you, you're in one, and uh, you're just keeping an eye on the next one that's tracking up and down, and you're there to, you know, to make sure it's loading and unloading, and you're there to load it up with seed and fertiliser and chemical, whatever. That'll happen very fast once it kicks in. The kicker is, is that we're the most expensive place in the world to employ labour. Where they're manufacturing this machinery, the Europeans, the Americans, the Russians, mind you, the Russians are much farther in, in advanced using automated headers. They, they have got pools of labour, half of it illegal, coming out of North Africa or, or Central South America. Um, well, Russia's just cheap anyway. So they're not having the same pressures that we have got to set up automation, but all the technology is there to do it. Look, it's it's, and it won't be just the big farmers. As soon as you've got two bits of gear, you're running two headers or two boom sprays or two whatever, the second one can just be the slave. So we might actually be capping out on the amount of staff we actually need. Um, yeah, so we might, we might be, instead of say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about our, the businesses around Australia, they go, okay, do we start investing hundreds of thousand dollars in facilities and houses and conditions and stuff or do we start pouring some of that capital into you know start investing in automation and other systems other than the people problem yeah well here's here's an, another way of looking at it is that you know the state governments do they we call for them to pour millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars into getting better teachers out into the regional areas they've actually decided politically it's not worth putting anything in because we don't vote the right way. To, There's no political influence. No, anyway. that's right. You know, the Conservatives keep voting conservatively. We've seen with a with a strong National Party vote across Australia, the recent federal election, uh, Labor is going to be there a while going, well, why would we invest in the bush when, you know, the, you know win or lose in the outer metro seats? So... That there's no incentive there. For farmers, it, it might be better off to pay for workers to send their kids to the schools in Perth and just close their eyes to what's happening because unless everyone supports the country towns, 
and stop buying farm, stop you know expanding, then the trajectory is brutal. What's what's coming? Yeah, and I, and I think that's the reality. So you know, this is uh, you know, the people listening to this are you know farm businesses, and it's interesting. These are the long term strategic decisions these businesses are going to have to make. Okay, the trends are saying your town's going to be half the size it is, and if it's already a thousand, that's almost dead mm. within. 25 years or so, and labor's not getting, there's no nothing on the horizon to say you're going to get cheaper labor anytime soon, right? So it's about going, okay, yes, we would love it, and yes, politically, all you could do, organisations like yourself, to put pressure to try and help out, but there's no easy wins here. So as a business, you've got to start accounting for those costs in your business. Uh, you know, you've got to start going, okay, you know, for a senior person, maybe 100 grand is going to be as cheap as it's going to get, plus we're going to have to supply houses and school fees yep. and and that's just a reality rather than saying waiting for, say, let's say sort of some sort of support from outside. Is that- and we, look, we've already been making these decisions uh, as family farm units and we're both the product of this where parents decided, um, I went to boarding school in 79, you were in there in the 80s, the education system wasn't up to scratch for what they wanted for the kids. So mm-hmm. you know, they loaded up some more debt and sent their kids away. The, first, the kids going away to boarding school in the 60s, more in the 70s, um, bad rush in the 80s. People have already made that those decisions. And so this is a natural extension. If you want good managers, I'm hearing 110, $120,000, $30,000. You know, farm workers, $80,000. You know, it's pretty standard now with flexibility in terms of coming and going with better accommodation. Because, you know, what is the risk of someone bending a very valuable piece of equipment? You know, in a very short period of time, which you use it during the year, it's off the scale. That flow of backpackers has been a bit of a godsend. You know, it's relatively, you know, it's 20 years. What are we up to 40 countries now? Uh, we can bring them in. So that sort of solves some of the seasonal seasonal work problems. They're pretty sophisticated, so a lot of the backpackers. The, the solution is buy bigger gear. You know, most farmers still haven't maxed out the size of gear they can get. It's how, you, how you're setting up the farm. What was the longest run I've seen is four kilometres for a seeding run or a harvest run now. And someone paid an extraordinary amount of money for the farm in the middle just to keep knocking out the fences because they, they, they said there was, an, uh, there was a 4.5% productivity improvement by just keep knocking out fences. And again, to go back to automation, that just got automation written all over it. If you've got a header just driving four kilometres in a straight line, who'd want to sit on that anyway? <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, even you know it's the deep ripping guys, you know, just mindlessly boring. Oh, that's you know, midsummer, and there's no reason even to stop. So that's the first thing to be automated. What what I do worry about is the livestock guys, but I, I see a huge opportunity to tap into more women going out. Yes, we're seeing yeah. lots more women doing ag science and stuff. Great thing to have more women going out. You know, we're still still for the farm boys that are out there. You know. Still need partners. Uh, we haven't we haven't sold it as well, but we're certainly seeing more opportunities for them. Uh, the retirees, you know, the federal government could in New Zealand they do it. You can keep your pension and you can still go and earn a heap of money working. Um, people retiring younger, well, what a waste! Grey nomads driving around the countryside looking for something to do. Yeah. And and a lot of these grey nomads have have retired from whatever career that they were sick of after forty years, but they still got a lot of energy. They're not old technically, you know. We're, we were up in the Kimberley for a month, and I tell you what, most of them they're, they're running camps, they're doing a whole yeah. lot of stuff, they're looking for work. Yeah, and usually they've been working in professional jobs or whatever, 
and they're sick of people, so they can put them in the head of cervix. Yeah, I know, and they might love it. And also, I agree, it's probably a great source of labour. Before we go, I just wanted to touch on one thing, and this is one of the the, the side effects, actually, which we're seeing in ag of small towns and isolation and big farms, and this is the mental health, and we've seen it with the Blue Tree Project and a bunch of other stuff, right? This is a real thing, and I think it's – and luckily it's been talked about in country towns and in rural – because when you and I were young in the farming sector, it was one of those things that – was there but was never talked about. How do you see the government supporting that? So, yes, you've got a small country town with maybe half a pub and but you've got a bunch of guys particularly who are spending a lot of time by themselves on farms and it's not a good recipe. No, and in fact, uh, historically we just know of too many We can, and everyone can think of someone who's, who's we've lost. And, and then there's all those single car accidents and you know, the, the drug and alcohol issues. It sort of triggers a thought. You know, it used to be watch the ABC TV series ages ago of, you know, sea change and the idealised country, you know, do the tree change, sea change, and you know, living in the rural community is absolutely lovely. It actually can be quite the opposite. Yeah. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows your business. You can't escape. There's something nice about being anonymous in the city. You go to Perth. You know, even though we live a village lifestyle in, in, the, in the city, you know, you go to the, the school, the same shop, the same cafe, the same whatever, sporting fields, and you go round, 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 round. And you essentially do that in a country t- a town, except everyone knows you. They know who you are. And you don't want to have any baggage or your family doesn't want any baggage because you get judged. And people are pretty brutal. This is why I think, you know, that flexibility to be able to go to the big, you know, metropolitan areas or the big regional centres, to be able to escape is actually incredibly mm. important. So being able to give people block time out so they can build networks outside of these these towns, you know, we, we shouldn't be holding them back and locking them in. We shouldn't be deluding ourselves and kidding ourselves what a great lifestyle it is because I guarantee every farmer I've spoken to who tells me how good it is, most of them aren't planning to be buried uh, they might be planning to be buried in the country town, but when they retire, they've got their Albany house and they've got their Perth house or whatever. Oh, yeah. And so they've got a big life outside of farm. That's right. So, you know, people who don't have the same sort of coin or access to capital, you know, let's give them the opportunities, encourage them. You know, if they like golf, go and play, you know, in a really yeah. nice golf course, build a network there. So let's not drink our own Kool Aid on this one. Let's just call it as it, it is. is. You know, yeah. many country towns can be awful places. And you know, yeah. I'll get pillared for saying that, but they absolutely can be. And well, they can be really. They can be like very much like a like a really tough lower socioeconomic suburb in Perth. Uh, very, very, it's very intense. And um, and I've worked in uh, Aboriginal communities, uh, running an Aboriginal corporation. And I tell you what, if you want to know why some of those, a lot of them, are dysfunctional, it's because they're just too intense. You know, you're 500 people, uh, all related. Um, everyone knows everyone's business and you're all stuck, you know, during the monsoon season or whatever in a small area. It's bloody awful. And um, mm. country towns can be a version of that. They can also be incredibly liberating and all the rest of it. All mm. nice, we give them a nice tick there. But it's nice to be able to meet new people. Yeah. So it's just accept the reality. You know, these are challenges and they're not new challenges. They're they're just continuing challenges. And But it's about what we're saying here is you're, or what you're saying here, Trevor, is just you know, just see it as it is. Like put in the stuff, plan for the future. Don't wait for any white. No white knight's going to come over and solve this issue. This is just reality. What I want to ask you before we go, Trevor, is 
whenever we talk people about ag, everyone gets really intense in whatever they are in ag. But I want to know, we've been talking about people's life outside of ag. So what do you do when you're not fighting for ag every day? So. <laughs> I'm, a, well, I'm a podcast junkie. <laughs> uh, so I studied uh, economics, politics and history at uni but my, and I did some, and I travelled extensively for right, I went overland right around the world and I did an exchange in Brazil. I'm just interested in the, in the world at large. So I spent a lot of time, uh, I was down at the beach in the rain running um, this morning, my kid, my 15-year-old's having a surf, I went for a run and I was listening to a podcast. So my, my rest and recreation is doing what we're doing now, which is exploring the world through podcasts. And, and I used to read a lot of books. I don't read now. I just I listen to audio books. So that's that's my time out. Uh, but I've recently gone back into picking up part of the uh, remnants of the family farm. And I can't escape agriculture because I'm going out there trying to work out how to reboot a farm, which is so your your break from agriculture is getting into farming. Yeah, no, no, right? I work that one out, so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you go, Before we go, what's what's your favourite podcast at the moment? What what are you what are you nerding out on? Uh, Econ Talk from Russ uh, Hinsers. You know, he's probably got six thousand listeners or uh, people listen to him. He's an extraordinary podcaster. John Anderson, uh, ex National Party leader, does an extremely good podcast. His most recent one with a. Uh, writer, academic, who talks about how boys uh, and men have been victimised through this very white world. Absolutely get, I encourage everyone to listen to that. It's really good. What else? Oh, a couple on Ukraine at the moment. I'm particularly interested in that. Uh, the Spectator, The Economist do good podcasts. So. It's a really lightweight stuff you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's no crime fiction in there. Uh, <laughs> I probably need to listen to some crime fiction to break it all up. Oh, very good. Well, mate, thank you very much. I hope this is um, a great, this will be a ton of value to the people listening today. And I really appreciate your time for putting the time in today to to, to talk to us all. And so thank you and best of luck and keep up the fight. Mate. I'll keep up. I'll go back to what I'm doing now is uh, writing my next article, which is uh, the federal, the state government's commitment to 25% electric vehicles. And I'm trying to, uh, I'm asking the Ag Minister how she's going to go with electric vehicles right across Western Australia when there's no recharges in the, in the regional ag departments. Look out for it. All right, guys. Well, um, I'll tell you, get onto LinkedIn and by the time this podcast's out, it'll be published. So go and read that. You've got it first here. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Trevor. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster Farm Business Management Software and Services, you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or directly with a friend. And let's make farm business great together.